0: Hello everybody, welcome to the third edition of the Hollywood Trust Conversations podcast. My name is Gerard Dean, joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm very well, Gerard, and you? Ah, dead on, I, dead on. Sure, we're tearing under these podcasts and we're getting on great. Um, So, Paul, this podcast we're going to discuss human rights and consider whether uh, there's about to be a major change in human rights legislation, which might have a significant impact here in Northern Ireland. Can you explain the background to that for us a wee bit, Paul?
1: Yeah, thanks, Gerard. Yes, there's a, a political conversation, shall we call it, taking place at the moment, mostly within the Conservative Party, about whether the UK should continue to be a member of the European Convention on Human Rights and subject to the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights. Membership of the ECHR became more controversial in June last year when the court blocked the removal to Rwanda of an asylum seeker who arrived in Britain from Iraq. This, in effect, put on hold the British government's intention to deport large numbers of asylum seekers to Rwanda.
0: But Paul, there was already debate about the UK's membership of the ECHR, or the European Convention on Human Rights when Brexit. It was discussed a bit of a blurred conversation, I think. Yes, it's, I mean, it's essential that, that we understand
1: what it seems some politicians didn't understand, or perhaps chose not to understand, is the fact that the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights are entirely separate from the European Union. Uh, It was just wrong for some politicians to confuse the two during the Brexit debate. Uh, The UK were members of the convention before the European Union and its predecessors were formed. The UK were actually founder members of the convention back in 1950. The European Convention on Human Rights was conceived after the Second World War in an attempt to prevent any European country ever again acting in the ways that the Nazis did in Europe. It was actually proposed by Winston Churchill, which some younger members may not, listeners may not be aware, was actually the Conservatives' wartime leader in the Second World War. And it was drafted, the convention was drafted by British officials. Uh, Today, it has 47 members, which is nearly twice as many countries that are members of the European Union. Uh, Let's listen now to an interview with Alison Kilpatrick, who's Northern Ireland's Human Rights Commissioner, I asked her about what withdrawal from the convention would mean in terms of it being caught at a Good Friday agreement, but also about the government's Troubles Bill, often called the the Legacy Bill, and also the Illegal Migration Bill and the Bill of Rights Bill, which are being taken through Parliament. Uh, The Bill of Rights Bill was the pet project of the then Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab, uh, who, of course, has since had to resign from government uh, just a few days ago over bullying allegations. Anyway, let's listen now to Alison. So I wanted to ask you how worried you are about this, and what you believe the impact for Northern Ireland would be if we did move away from the European Convention on Human Rights?
2: I'm worried both at the prospect of leaving, but even if we don't leave, I'm worried at the discourse around this and even the suggestion that it would benefit us in some ways. Um, I can see no benefit whatever. And the evidence, if if you call it that, the the argument for leaving just doesn't merit uh, close attention. It just isn't correct. So all the reasons um, that we're told that we'd be better off for leaving are simply not true. So that being the case, I wonder why. Why leave something that has been of such a benefit for so many years? Why uh, make ourselves look bad to an international crowd? Um, why give up all that we've achieved and and I've seen close hand, you know, through the policing board through the Human Rights Commission and also in private practice, the barrister, just what real practical benefit this has brought us, particularly here, and just getting ready to speak to you this morning, um, I looked again at the Good Friday Agreement, I and mean, the Good Friday Agreement is absolutely hinged on membership of the ECHR, but more than that direct effect. So. We would complain, I think, at the Commission that it still hasn't been given sufficient direct effect uh, and there still isn't adequate redress um, as per the, the Good Friday Agreement. But certainly the Human Rights Act went a long way. So if we leave, if we repeal the Human Rights Act, replacement Bill of Rights, that will leave us in breach of the Good Friday Agreement and significantly less well off. If we leave the ECHR, which is almost unthinkable, um, certainly to me then I think we are certainly sending out a signal across the world what our future intentions are. And we are certainly not going to be able to guarantee rights, protections and dignity and respect to all people of Northern Ireland. You certainly won't be able to get into court to try and enforce them if you allege uh, that you've suffered breaches. So in in my view, it is. um, I don't think catastrophic is too strong a word.
1: Clearly, the the political context for this is the frustration within the Home Office in particular at the... Inability, as they see it, to um, remove uh, asylum seekers, uh, refugees from the UK to Rwanda in particular, because of the impact of the ECHR. And what beyond that are the, the the issues that the government is unhappy about with the ECHR?
2: There are many issues which are used, I think, as a wedge to create division and stir up um, anxiety. It certainly that's the effect. Some of these issues, and that you know that so-called small boats is one of them simply isn't going to um be affected by leaving the ECHR. But even if it was, it's about human dignity and it's what we'd expect for our people if ever they needed to, to, to move across the world. But anyway, aside from that, I suspect the issue is it's all those sort of hot button issues, those populist issues like prisoners' rights, like crime, like law and order. Um and giving the suggestion, making the suggestion that somehow those are strengthened if we leave the ECHR or that somehow human rights undermines our safety and protection uh, and allows prisoners to take advantage or be released early. None of the things are true in my view. Um, and I've been looking at this for, for 30 odd years. But it, it's hard to deny that those, those are issues which really hit home for people. So if they are told consistently that they are less safe, that they are more likely to be attacked in the street, that the police are much less likely to keep them safe. Of course, they start considering options like leaving the ECHR, but that's precisely what these sort of stories are designed to achieve. I saw uh, policing, and this this had a particular resonance in the Northwest. I saw directly um, how a human rights approach and being a member of the ECHR and having the Human Rights Act changed the face of policing in the Northwest. Um, following the Good Friday Agreement, that simply would not be possible. PSNI, for you know, for its faults at time gets wrong. It's hailed across the world as being a really good example of community-led consent-driven policing and human rights compliant policing. And that was only because of membership of the ECHR and the Human Rights Act and somebody monitoring that. So I I, I, I don't see any reason to leave. I see also only um, disadvantages of leaving.
1: And what other things would you point to, Alison, as benefits from our membership of DCHR in terms of day-to-day life in Northern Ireland?
2: There are so many. It it can go anything from um, if you are a, a, a tenant of the housing executive and you face eviction from your home. You have very specific rights under the Human Rights Act applying the European Convention which a judge is forced to take into account, which he or she didn't have to before. Um, So it has to be reasonable for you to have to leave your home. And that introduces a whole, I suppose, an element of compassion and individual approach to cases that that wasn't there before, right through to health treatment, um, the the conditions in a hospital ward, as well as your length of time on a waiting list your follow-up treatment, access to education, your right to marry, your right, right to profess your religion, your right to go to a church, all of those things will be affected. Now, the um, protocol, now the uh, Windsor Framework, tells us that it guarantees certain equalities um, going forward just as a matter of um, those provisions, but that, that simply wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be underwritten by uh, or protected in the same way if we weren't members of the ECHR. We also wouldn't have direct access to the local courts. And that has, people will ha- have seen how that can make a direct difference, because you can have all sorts of rights on paper, but if you can't actually get into a court with resources to argue a case and have a lawyer who, who can do it for you um, in your local court and get an answer relatively quickly, then those rights aren't much use.
1: Could you could you explain that a bit more detail, Alison, in terms of local sure. court process?
2: And this is perhaps where, if we remained members of the ECHR, a person could still go to Strasbourg and bring a complaint to the European Court of Human Rights. However, it would take years. It um, is very unlikely to have a a real direct impact um, back home, and the government can, in certain circumstances, simply ignore, and it has in, in, in some cases. Because of the Human Rights Act, which brought the ECHR into effect in Northern Ireland, you can go to your local judge should it be magistrate district judge right up through the court of appeal in northern ireland and you can ask that judge or judges to consider your human rights um should it be in belfast or straban or derry and that judge can make a determination and an order can order a public authority or government if necessary to take certain steps to make sure that your rights are, are complied with in the future that's hugely significant now you wouldn't be deprived necessarily your rights under the ECHR by removal of the Human Rights Act, as long as we stayed a member of the ECHR, but if we left the ECHR as well, you have absolutely nowhere to go. And what it says is that those standards and rights which we held dear across Europe, and which people in Northern Ireland thought was going to be the the levelling up in Northern Ireland, to use someone else's words, uh, it was gonna make us all equal because there were objective standards across Europe, which civilized nations had agreed. That's gone. We no longer have that standard. We don't learn from our neighbors across Europe. We don't benefit from their um, jurisprudence. We don't benefit from love sharing across Europe, which is, is also a tremendous effect. But just th- th- this notion of actually having a direct remedy in the courtroom, as I say, as a practicing barrister, I, I can tell you that the impact and effect of being able to walk into a local courtroom your local lawyer of choice and tell the judge that your human right has been breached and that he or she should do something about it is hugely significant and it 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 simply cannot be replaced
1: now alongside the conversations about the european convention on human rights and our continued membership we've got the british government bringing forward new legislation on the uk bill of rights which is separate from the conversation we have around good friday Agreement and the bill of rights uh, promise that was in there can you say what the impact would be if the uk government actually proceeds with its own bill of rights and that is enacted
2: so in terms of the the so-called bill of rights for the uk is not a an attempt to clarify and enhance rights it is in my view having read it including the explainer document it is an attempt to limit rights and Rebalance in the sense that some people will um, receive fewer rights than others, or will have a different process for enforcing those rights than others. And that seems to me to be the key point about this Bill of Rights. It's not necessarily the rights themselves, but the recipients of the rights, which seems to have caused objection. And this Bill intends to address that. So in other words, some people will be deemed to have um, essentially lost their rights or given up their rights if they've engaged in certain behaviour. It also puts front and center um, and trumps many other rights, freedom of speech. That superficially seems very attractive, certainly, to people who believe in freedom of speech, but it, it isn't actually going to um, protect freedom of speech for you or me or, or any member of the public. It's much more likely to protect the freedom of others to use racist language, for example, homophobic language, misogynistic language. It doesn't really help any of us and there is no reason why it should trump other rights. The framework established by the courts under the Convention and under the Human Rights Act has always balanced rights. So courts can balance rights and public authorities can balance rights. Uh, They take into account personal circumstances and and, um, the the public good. Individuals don't always um, override the um, needs of others, but that's already perfectly protected in my view under the uh, framework of the Convention as applied by the Human Rights Act.
1: Now, a lot of this is connected to a political agenda in relation to refugees and asylum seekers. Would their circumstances be negatively impacted if the UK government's Bill of Rights proceeds?
2: Potentially. This is where it gets slightly awkward, because on the one hand, it's not human rights or the membership of the ECHR or the Human Rights Act, which affects government's ability to 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 decide policy on what it does with asylum seekers and refugees. But what it does is that um, if that person puts foot down in our territory, then they also have human rights like everybody else. Now, I don't think anybody if asked that question would say they shouldn't have human rights, the basic human rights, the fundamental human rights. It may make it more difficult to put them in appalling conditions it may make it more difficult to separate them from their children while they're here, but it shouldn't affect and hasn't uh, affected decisions made as to whether or not they can be refugees in this place or whether they, they have to go somewhere else. Um, so that there's a sort of false argument, a proxy argument going on, I think all, all membership of the ECHR does in relation to asylum seekers and refugees is make us treat them humanely with the same fundamental human rights as anybody else. When it comes to their right to remain permanently on this land, that isn't affected by ECHR.
1: When we're talking about the UK government's Bill of Rights, is that proposal related to issues around the use of former um, military stations, possibly in County Down, for example, and uh, offshore uh, boats for the location of asylum seekers, refugees? Is, Is that related to it?
2: I don't know is the is, is short answer, but one can't help but think that all of these things are interrelated. And the problem with sort of joining them all up is that it's attaching a sort of a rational, reasonable approach to something which I don't think is rational and reasonable and doesn't actually interlink, but it's throwing in together all of these issues that people are a little bit worried about. and And I understand the concern That's a whole different thing that can be addressed differently, but there is nothing. I mean, I've asked many people um, who are putting forward policy in this field and and legislation, what are you suggesting that you could do differently but for membership of BCHR or uh, the Human Rights Act? And I've yet to be given any convincing answer.
1: Now, going back to specifically Northern Ireland, uh, Alison, uh, we've never had the the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights that was promised under the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, what do you feel we would have achieved what what have we lost by not having it
2: well firstly we've lost I suppose um, our trust and confidence in the parties to the agreement that they would do what they said they would do in the agreement so there was a very specific commitment to it and it was very deliberate it was thought out it was negotiated during the the peace negotiations that Northern Ireland required something slightly different something extra as a result of conflict that had gone through so that's all the Bill of Rights was supposed to be doing addressing those issues about which we had greater concern and need in Northern Ireland and now it was way before my time uh, that the advice was given by the Commission um, in relation to contents of the Bill of Rights and I understand why the debate maybe um, became a little bit less comfortable when people started getting into the the substance of rights and to whom um, those rights would apply but it was a very clear commitment and acknowledgement that we needed something extra over and above simply membership of ECHR. And again, I've asked what's if anything has changed, why we no longer need that, or what it is about giving Northern Ireland a little bit more to reflect the conflict it's been through. What is it about that that troubles people? And I've yet to have a compelling answer to that as well.
1: Do you think we've just lost it basically?
2: I think there may be a lack of honesty around some of the discussions. I don't think it's lost forever. I do think, and this is this is my personal view, not, not that of the Commission. I do think perhaps uh, in terms of the content or the drafting of the Bill of Rights advice, some changes could be made to make it a little bit easier to accept. And I think perhaps there were it it did reach quite far in terms of what the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights would cover. But that's I say that, that that's for other people. Certainly in any of my discussions, it seems to be the the breadth of rights. Um, But if people are having a really honest conversation about it, what they let slip is that it's actually about the, the people to whom those rights attach, which seems to be the issue. So saying that everybody is equal and everyone is entitled to the same rights and that there was a conflict and everyone was affected by the conflict, that in itself seems to be objectionable and that in itself seems to be what's holding up the idea of the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights and it's I think we need to I think we've got ourselves in a spin and perhaps the conversations are not as honest as, as they need to be
1: that's very interesting Alison I mean we've got one other big issue in front of us in terms of legislation which is the the legacy bill the troubles bill w- what do you feel in terms of whether that opens up new breaches of human rights
2: well, certainly. Um, now, I'm going to be a little bit more constrained than I'm, I usually am on this subject, simply because um, the government is looking at amendments, and they've met with us very recently, and are are have been listening to our advice in relation to some of those amendments. But let's take it as it stands at the minute, where it is at the minute, with its um, suggested amendments. Um, commission is very clear that the the bill, if it progressed, would be in breach of. Uh, the Human Rights Act, would be in breach specifically of Article 2 of the ECHR. And not in any small measure either. It would be a fundamental breach of the ECHR because what it would do is say that firstly the right to life in Northern Ireland um, cannot be effectively protected because there is no investigatory obligation. The reason we have this requirement for an independent Article 2 investigation, where particularly um, the state may be implicated, is that it is the only way really of ensuring that the right to life, the substantive right to life, is protected. Because if you can't have a proper investigation following the taking of the life, find out whether it was lawful or not lawful, whether it could have been avoided, etc., what the truth is for the family members who are left behind, then the right to life doesn't mean very much at all. And what this bill is trying to do, and they they do say say this themselves uh, in the opening, what this bill is trying to do is legislatively draw a line and say nothing can be reopened beyond a certain date. Approaches like that have been adopted in some parts of the world, but not to close down everything, including inquests, civil claims, criminal prosecutions. And even the South African model, which people often um, use as, as an example of how this sort of truth and reconciliation process can be a very positive thing, even in South Africa. And it, it followed directly the peace um, talks there. It didn't wait 25 years, followed directly, which is important. But also it did not close down all inquests, civil claims and prosecutions. You know, there's still stuff being considered in the courts in South Africa now. So this is wholly unique this is way beyond even the south african model and my biggest concern is that it is not independent it is not by again by design it is not independent because it has been brought within uh, a commission appointed by the secretary of state much of the guidance and decision making will be that 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 materially will affect the operation of this commission will be made by the secretary of state that's not independent but it's closing the door on all those deaths, murders, tortures, uh, kidnappings, etc. that people are still troubled by. And the fact that for many years, they didn't have the truth or they were told something very different to what actually happened, and, and we know that categorically now through some of the reports that have followed, that has enhanced the pain and suffering of the people certainly that I've met. They feel like they're they're still living a lie that their relatives who were killed or or, or injured have been maligned, and that there is no chance of fixing that. And the only chance of fixing it was through court, so they trusted the judiciary for the most part. We have an independent judiciary, and they have done a really pretty good job over the years of trying to bring some measure of truth and light onto these cases. And the Bally Murphy Inquest is one example that's always given. The relief of pain that brought to those families it was palpable, and the inquiry in Derry as well, Bloody Sunday Inquiry.
1: If we mm-hmm. hadn't had the Savoy Inquiry, I mean, the, the the rawness of the pain in the city would never end almost.
2: It doesn't go away, and I've met um, many people affected um, who are families. Um, for the, the Canova investigation, which I know you'll know about, come to forefront again recently, the alleged agent steak knife. Um, I've met quite a few of those families and the pain is very real it's not going anywhere just because government tells them that the courts are closed down to them if anything it's getting worse because of that and certainly people were in touch traumatized genuinely traumatized at the prospect of the state removing any possibility for them to ever get any answers people are realistic they're also very accepting that there is you know, there is a limit to what can be achieved in terms of having people in front of a courtroom and prosecuted and sent to prison but they want something and the very least they want is truth and some sort of acknowledgement and justification and in many cases uh, just, just a recognition that lies were told about their loved ones in some of those cases and that's you know, it's very easy for somebody else to tell them that really for everyone else's sake they need to you know get over that and and move on They've already accepted huge amount. They're the ones who have accepted probably most of the pain in this, and we're asking them to do it again. They have got over the past. All they want is, is is the law to do what the law is supposed to do for them and for their families, however long ago it was, it was. It's the rest of us who are holding things up, it seems to me, and the people who can actually make this happen who are holding things up. They need to be reconciled, not necessarily the victims and survivors. We do need to be really honest about how bad it is at the minute. And how bad the rhetoric is and how quickly we could lose all our gains. And we could and and if 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 we repeal the Human Rights Act, that in itself is going to be sufficiently um dangerous, I think, for Northern Ireland. If we leave the ECHR, then I would be extremely troubled, I have to say. I would really wonder about the what I could do as a as a, as a chief commissioner.
0: OK, so lots of talk of lots of bulls there, Paul. So as well as interviewing Alison, you also interviewed two other experts. So Colin Harvey, who's a professor of human rights at Queen's University, and Daniel Holder, who's a, the newly appointed director of the Committee on the Administration of Justice.
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, Daniel was very worried by the challenges to our human rights. Uh, so, so let's listen to him. And let's hope this
3: bell goes with Dominic Rabb, as no one else on the planet seemed to think it was a good idea other than him. But essentially what the bell is trying to do is, is disincorporate, roll back the incorporation of the European Convention of Human Rights and Law, which again reaches the good Friday agreement. Again, he's not the first government figure to, to try and do this. Uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia uh, put through changes to roll back the domestic incorporation of the European Convention in Russian Law. A number of of years ago what he's trying to do is make it more difficult for people to access convention rates and as you allude to as well it's being done through that bill but it's also being done through through other bills um, as well including the, the the legacy bill but also other other bits of legislation should not be relaxed and we should also look at the the, the broader context of attempts to dismantle democracy and, and other Places too. Dominic Rab's Bill of Rights, I think, is the only Bill of Rights in history, certainly that I'm aware of, the express purpose of which was to take away people's rights um, rather than to strengthen them. It's extremely alarming. What's in the Migration Bill is extremely alarming. It has real consequences on people. Its primary driver may well be electioneering and rhetorical, but it's real, it's there and it's extremely uh, far-reaching. I know some of the discourse over it has been about the sort of small boats on the channel and things like that, but when you actually redevelop, the bill, it doesn't stop there. It will affect the land border here. People who cross the land border, people who even live in the south, who require visas to come into the north, will be subjected to these draconian powers where they can be arbitrarily removed from the jurisdiction with very few safeguards and sent to another place or even a, a third country like Rwanda. It could capture many people who just stray across the border. It's, it's quite an alarming situation. The legacy bill is deeply, deeply shocking too. I mean, you've had the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights calling for this bill to be withdrawn. You've had the Council of Europe figures making similar calls on this there is concern in the international community about precedent this bill sets. Obviously, there's concern here about the impact it has on victims here, but there's much broader concern about the precedent that it's set. The UK is still a permanent member of the Security Council in the UN. Um, other states will use this as an example. If you think about what the legacy bill does, I mean, well, first of all, for the first time in our peace process, there's been implementationists that you've alluded to. But the Legacy Bill actually involves the current British government, Boris Johnson's government as it was, tearing up one of the existing bilateral agreements of the peace settlement, the House Agreement, and just bending it, and coming up with something else. And coming up with something else with the express purpose, and Brendan Lewis himself said this when he introduced it, of ending investigations into the into the military. And what the bill will do is essentially three things. Um, one is it grants a very broad amnesty for applicants who don't have to give any new information to a new legacy body. The second thing it does is it will progressively shut down absolutely everything else that's already up and running the inquest system, police investigations, the gun voucher, Canova um, type called in investigations, police ombudsman's legacy investigations, even civil claims and civil litigation so this bill just shuts down everything at a time it's actually most delivering information recovery with teeth for victims and families a lot of these processes have been thwarted over the years it's a testimony to the battle of families and and that, that uh, their lawyers their advocates and others that we're now getting to a situation where we're getting a lot of information recovery out of the existing mechanisms they're now be really closed down and the third thing is they'll then be replaced by a body with far more limited powers that's under considerable degree of control uh, by Northern Ireland office, office ministers. It's an absolute disaster. It's No wonder UN experts have called it a fragrant breach of the UK's international legal obligations. Council of Europe said it will breach the convention on human rights in its its current form. Yet, it's being pushed through regardless. And regardless of its breaches of the Good Friday Agreement as well.
1: Now, Uh, As well as Daniel, Colin Harvey provides actually a more optimistic note for us to end on today, uh, suggesting that some of the noise we're hearing about legal reform of human rights is just pre-election rhetoric, you know, in the run-up to the council elections and also the general election next year, uh, rather than, in his view, serious proposals. Anyway, let's, let's listen to Colin.
4: Well, starting point really, and we're thinking at the moment about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, that human rights and equality are central to that agreement. And if you like, it, a number of promises were made. One of those was the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into Northern Ireland law. And that obligation has been fulfilled through the Human Rights Act and actually the Northern Ireland Act provisions as well in relation to that. So you have the current government in Westminster talking about repealing and replacing the Human Rights Act and making occasional noises about the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's a deeply worrying time. Uh, and if you add to that the fact that the Bill of Rights promised in the agreement has never, in fact, been been delivered, that would build on all of that. You know, it's it's quite concerning that at the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, we don't have a bill of rights, but but actually we're having a conversation on holding on to what we have at the moment. Actually, that's the primary discussion. Uh, another context is the legacy legislation. You know what's being proposed in relation to immigration and asylum, and across a whole range of areas. We're really in what what is I think essentially a, a human rights crisis. But I just want to raise a point as to how real this is, Paul because um, my strong sense, and I've been picking up this uh, from others as well, is that that the Human Rights Act uh, may well survive and that the attacks on the European Court of Human Rights and the European Convention of Human Rights are essentially political rhetoric being deployed for essentially partisan political reasons, uh, you know, with an election, a Westminster election on the horizon. So my sense would be, and I may be wrong, is that the Human Rights Act may actually survive and that uh, the attacks on the European Convention, the human rights and the European Court of Human Rights, as they have been in the past, are, are political hot air, to be counted, that, that they don't intend to leave the European Convention. Obviously, the additional uh, problem that they have is uh, not only dishonoring uh, the good friday agreement but what they've actually signed up to and agreed with the european union in terms of for example the trade and cooperation agreement and the implications there if they were to walk away from the european convention on human rights so i just wonder to what extent this is all partisan political rhetoric uh, with an election in mind and how real some of this actually is but we'll see in the weeks and months ahead
0: okay so well thanks to alison daniel and colin for their time Um, and whose insights were very, very valuable. So valuable, in fact, that we're going to run the full interviews on the Hollywell Trust website alongside this podcast as well. So, Paul, thanks to yourself for doing the interviews and the research behind them. Thanks to your funders, the Community Relations Council, and to Michael, our editor, and to all of you who are listening. All right, talk to you again soon.